Welcome back to the Two Stewards Show. This is Mark, and in this episode, I interview Brent, and we talk a little bit about his company, Good Stewards, and what he does. So that would include value-add real estate investing, especially uh, in the single-family space, intensification, things like that. So if you like this episode, if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, give us a good rating, and uh, share with all your friends. And now on to the episode. Well, hello and welcome to the Two Stewards Podcast. My name is Mark from Joy Hill Property Management. And I'm Brent from Good Stewards Inc. So today we're just going to uh, dive into what we do a little bit. And uh, I'm going to interview Brent and uh, find out exactly what he does at uh, at Good Stewards Inc. So um, Brent, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, let's talk about what you do. So in a nutshell, what uh, what do you do over at Good Stewards? Real estate investing. So okay. that's a pretty broad question. And um, so we have a bit of a philosophy. Uh, Good Stewards obviously is a name that comes from um, the biblical principles of stewardship. And um, to us, uh, everything that we have is a gift, right? We've been given um, our financial resources. We've been given time. Uh, relationships. So all these different things um, are blessings and we have to use them uh, accordingly, right? Um, so one of the ways that we see as a good opportunity to uh, steward our financial blessings and our time is through real estate investing. Um, and we discussed some of the uh, reasons for real estate investing in uh, the last episode. We'll, we'll probably dive into them more as we go along, but uh, we chose real estate investing. It definitely aligns with um, our skill sets and our interests. Um, and our goal is to really help um, the average investor, um, the average kind of middle-class family uh, and person to access real estate investing. Because um, I guess to paint a picture, um, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, real estate was you know, not so mainstream and it was a little bit more attainable actually um, for the average person to kind of buy a property and, and put tenants in it. Um, you could just kind of pick any property off the street and, and um, you know, put tenants in it and the rent would cover the expenses and you'd be off to the race if you have yourself, uh, you know, a pretty good investment property set up. And, um, and lately uh, it's been getting more and more challenging for the average person to access real estate. Um, so what we kind of specialize in is uh, taking somebody's hand and going alongside them through the whole process of finding a property. Uh, where should I look? You know, what should I be looking for? Um, and then, you know, even the financing side of it, of like, how do I get my finances set up to be able to, to start buying properties um, all the way through to um, after you've made the acquisition to um, doing any re renovations. So a lot of the times we're intensifying the property, um, adding units, and that's a, a way to uh, allow the property to have more cash flow so it's more feasible. So like I said, 15 years ago, somebody could buy a rental property and just put a single tenant in it. Now, because of um, where prices are at, interest rates are at, um, and demand, uh, a lot of population growth, there's so much demand for these properties that that's not feasible anymore. So you have to be putting in additional units. You have to be optimizing uh, the property. And we kind of call that the highest and best use uh, 
um, of the land, right? So when you're buying a piece of land, you're going to be uh, optimizing it, seeing how much rent you can get from that piece of land. And um, yeah, that usually requires a little bit more expertise than just, um, you know, a weekend warrior with a hammer kind of thing, right? And a lot of people don't have the time to put in to do all that work. Um, and what we're doing, um, we're putting legal basements, um, you know, putting legal backyard suites, um, some of these strategies, and that requires getting drawings done, permits. And so it's a bit to bite off for the average person. So that's kind of where we step in and our company really tries to make that whole process easy. Just come to us, we, uh, we work alongside you to get that done. And at the end of the day, you own an asset that, um, you know, we offer property management services for uh, long-term rentals. And so we kind of take care of everything. And uh, yeah, the goal is to be able to have people um, build a portfolio over time that they're happy with and that they can hold on to for the long term. So that's kind of in a nutshell, everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you have any more specific questions? But, oh, I have lots. I have uh, lots. <laughs> so we're, um, yeah, like you raise a good point in, uh, in, especially in the area that we're in 10, 15 years, like, yeah, 10, probably a, bit, a little bit over 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I bought our first house together and uh, had a basement suite and we rented it out and um, like, yeah, that was cool. It was, you know, half the basement was finished and that was the suite and uh, that was an easy entree for us into the market. Um, you know, house prices were probably a third of what they are now, you know, apples to apples. <clears throat> so yeah, it was a little bit different. Um, and yeah, it would, uh, you know, looking at it now, yeah, sure. With experience, we could probably do that again, but let's say, uh, you know, I'm, you know, you've got a young couple and, uh, they have saved up, saved up or come up with enough money. Um, you know, just hypothetical here to, to get a second property, an investment property. Um, yeah. What, so they're going to come to you and they're, they're going to say, Hey, like, uh, we think we should buy another property. What can you do for us? Walk me through the process yeah. a little bit, right? Sort of from the beginning. So that's kind of a good example of who are the people that we could help the most because yeah, a lot of people do own their own home. And, you know, if it's a husband and wife and uh, they're both working, um, so they have pretty good incomes. Um, maybe they're putting their kids through school um, and they're kind of in that phase of life where they've, they've got their house, they've paid down a good portion of it, or they, maybe they bought it, you know, 10 years ago and there's some equity saved up there. Um, so what we would help them do is um, get, the, get them set up with the home equity line of credit on their house. Um, to be able to borrow money from their house to make the purchase of the investment property. Um, yeah, most people don't have a big pile of cash sitting around and they can't just, you know, uh, pull out their RSPs and, uh, and other investments right away. So, um, yeah, probably the best way to access money is uh, through your own home's equity. And, um, yeah, once you get uh, that loan set up at HELOC, um, you can go out and make a purchase and use those proceeds as the down payment on the investment property. And if you have a big enough, um, you know, HELOC, you can probably use some of that for the renovations as well. Um, so a lot of the properties that we're doing, there are quite significant renovations. 
because um, we're, we're trying to buy distressed properties that need a lot of work. And also we're adding like a whole kitchen and a basement and bathrooms. And we usually redo everything, to be honest, um, to bring it up to a very high standard. So I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of forget what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did. So let's get some context here. So in, in our specific area, so if we're in the Hamilton area, what is the kind of budget we're looking at here? And um, yeah, is, are there alternative ways to fund the renovation part? Getting the down payment to buy a house is one thing, doing the renos. Um, and so, like, what would that all cost in, uh, in this area? Just an average, yeah. average so, home. Yeah, so prices have, like, for the actual homes um, seem to be coming down in the last, you know, six months. Um, so we always try to keep tabs on uh, the actual market where home prices are and then have um, streams uh, for off-market deals as well where you might be able to get uh, a reduced price, something that a private seller is willing to um, negotiate a price that's lower. Maybe it's better terms. So there's creative ways to actually do the purchase where we can come up with a better, a better purchase price. Um, obviously, we're not competing with um, other people. Like when we, when we make an offer on a house, we're, we're kind of doing the, the numbers and we decide what number that house is worth to us for the investment to work. And we offer that. And it, it kind of takes all of the emotions out of it because you're not, you know, it's not your forever home. You're not going to live there. It's an investment property. The numbers have to make sense. And that's where you start. So when we make an offer, um, it is property specific, so it's hard to kind of just generalize, but I would say right now it's, you know, probably in the 650 range. Um, some of these properties, um, a lot of the times uh, you're looking for an upside potential, right? Like when you buy a piece of land, you're stuck with that thing for a long time. And that's kind of our motto is it's long-term investing. So you buy it and you're committed, right? Um, uh, we don't really do flips and um, these other types of investments where you're, you're buying it and then you usually sell it within a couple of years. So um, the purpose is for the investor to build a portfolio and to have long-term wealth for generations, for their, for their kids, for their family, for the community. Um, so that's what we're going to buy. So when we go in and buy, we obviously look at, you know, what could we, could this property become? And, and then there's a variable there, like, you know, what would it cost to make it that? And is it worth it? So all those numbers kind of go in a hat and are into our spreadsheet, <laughs> our very sophisticated hat-like spreadsheet. And uh, yeah, we, we kind of go back and forth in terms of the uh, investors' risk tolerance because some of these projects do require uh, pretty significant renovations. Um, and um, there's actually, uh, we could do multiple phases as well because um, for some properties, you can you can buy the house. It's a single family dwelling, and you can convert uh, the basement to an apartment. So you have two legal units. Um, but some of the lots lend themselves to, you know, a backyard suite, uh, like a third separate detached dwelling unit. So that could be something that you say is a bonus feature on your piece of land. So you're buying this now, and you know, hopefully once you've done the renovations, uh, it cash flows, and then you go. You know, maybe in five years you've saved up enough money or you have some equity built up in the investment property, you can refinance and build the actual um, backyard suite. So 
the construction costs and all that, like it's, um, it does vary too, because some investors do want to kind of minimize those expenses and some investors, um, you know, see the long term and see the value of um, putting in nicer stuff and doing more significant renovation. So that's kind of where we uh, have been lining up is on the more significant renovation side of things. And that's, you know, 200 plus uh, for a house most of the time. So. so that would be like doing the whole house, adding a basement suite. Are there any things that, um, that you kind of insist on doing that might be more structural or, or anything really um, that investors don't always see the value of? Yeah. So I, I've seen a lot of investment properties over the years and looked at them and some, you know, just through posts on, you know, um, on marketplace or whatever. And, um, yeah, you, you can run the numbers and make it work by just kind of putting lipstick on the pig sort of thing. Right. Um, and we've done that in the past as well. And I've generally found that the, um, the tenant quality, when you do, a cheap renovation and you cut corners and you don't kind of maximize the potential of your land um, and your home, then you, yeah, you end up with tenants that, you know, cause problems or um, aren't the greatest. Um, and generally I find that, um, you know, here in Ontario, the landlord tenant board, like we have, you're restrictive. We can't evict tenants. Um, for unless, <laughs> unless there's some serious problems going on, they're not paying rent, but the process is very onerous and difficult. So um, when you pick tenants, when you attract tenants, it's very important to find good ones. And we generally try to create units that will attract tenants that are going places, I like to say. So they're upward mobile. They're going to be here for a short period of time, and then they're gonna move out because um, they know why they're living here. It's just kind of, I'm here for one to two to three years because I'm saving up money to do this. And then I'm going to go to this province and I'm going to start a business or whatever. Right. And maybe it's not exactly that profile, but they definitely have, um, I want to say future in mind and it's not in our rental unit. So, um, so to attract those tenants, we have to create a space that, um, yeah, that is nice and clean and comfortable, well designed, well laid out. Um, everything has its place and its purpose. And, um, yeah, some of these other units where you're just, you know, painting the walls and putting some trim up, don't really cut it to, to get those tenants to be fine. So, yeah. And I guess the other benefit to that as well, if you have upwardly mobile, maybe professional tenants is that, um, you're not stuck with the same tenant for 10 years. Yeah. So which, that allows us to raise the rent, right? Yeah. Which in a rent controlled area, like Ontario is, uh, is pretty critical, especially if you either have a variable rate mortgage or, mm -hmm. um, you know, just in general, if you want to keep up to market rent, that's tougher. And and we see that too in some of the, some of the places we manage, right? And like, we've got one or two units that are, yeah, lipstick on a pig for lack of a better <laughs> word, right? And yeah, the tenant that you attract, um, you know, everybody needs a place to live, yeah. so don't get me wrong, but it's, it's a different, uh, certainly a different demographic and they tend to stay like they're not leaving. If they find a place that's more affordable, cause it's, it's gotta be more affordable. Um, they're never leaving. So it's a bit of a catch 22. Yeah, and it doesn't get better because, you know, after they're there for five years, the, the market rents have gone up 
So if they were to actually move on to a different unit, a lot of the times, you know, I actually have, we have a unit that we've rented out for, you know, eight, nine years or whatever. And, um, you know, they'd be paying basically double if they moved out or very close to it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, into a similar kind of size unit in that area. Right. So a lot of the times, um, yeah, tenants are, are forced to make those decisions. Uh, do I move and pay double or, you know, a significant percentage more and, or live in a, you know, lower quality unit further away from my job, further away from my family, or do I make the decision to, um, just stay here because it might not be ideal. It might not work exactly, but it definitely is cheap. Right. So yeah, attracting tenants for us is about finding people that are, uh, are willing to pay more, uh, because they value the things that we provide and they're not here for 10 years They're here for, you know, two or three years. So we do get more turnover, generally speaking, um, which can be more work as well, but it's also, uh, yeah, it's not every day, like Airbnbs, we'll talk about your stuff. Um, the turnover that you get in that industry is a little bit different, but this is this still every one to two to three years. Somebody important emailed you. <laughs> I'm a pretty important guy, let me tell you. So let me throw a curveball at you. Um, we're talking about, you know, how to kind of manage your, your, your units, your portfolio with a view to, um, to keeping on top of market rents, et cetera, et cetera. So if you look at any sort of tenants rates groups, um, you know, there's a common thread that, you know, like a landlords are parasites in general. Um, never mind that private landlords provide something like 90% of all the housing stock. So, um, but that landlord shouldn't be making money off of housing. Do you have any like a take on that? In terms of um, like charging high rents for. Yeah. Like we talk about staying on top of market rent and that's, you know, determined by the market, I guess, but people mm -hmm. out there are saying, no, you should provide affordable housing for everybody and anybody. And it's your choice to get into real estate and to buy yeah. a place. And um, you know, landlords basically should not profit from providing housing. Right. Yeah. That's a bit of a curveball. So yeah, affordable <laughs> housing is, uh, yeah, what does that actually mean? Right. Cause affordable, uh, is different for everybody, right? Some people can afford more and choose to live in something, you know, way below their means. And that might be commendable, but it requires sacrifice. And, um, you know, and then there's other people who live beyond their means and they get burned. So, it's up to them. It's their decision ultimately where they're going to live. Um, like we've had units on the market and, and you know, the, the prices, you know, maybe it's a higher end of the market, but we get applications or inquiries from all kinds of people. Right. And we generally ask, you know, what, what is your income or household income for that, for that unit? Like, how do you think you're going to pay for this unit? And yeah, some people, you know, their income is sufficient to pay for it. In my opinion, like they, they have uh, a bit of bandwidth and they can afford to pay the rent and other people uh, clearly don't have the money and they're applying to something that's, you know, very on the high end of the market. Right. Mm -hmm. So it not for me to judge all their financial decisions. Like maybe they have money that I don't know about or whatever, but their stated income, like it's beyond their means. Right. So, um, like I know my wife and I, when we got married, we, we tried to find the cheapest 
place. Like we both worked, we both had, had, you know, decent income. She was a nurse and I was in design. So we had, we had good incomes for our age and, you know, but we still tried to find something that was below our means and just, you know, try to be prudent with your money. So, um, yeah, I see both, both sides of that. And, um, we're trying to fill that spot in the market that is for people who want to appreciate, um, like good, clean, comfortable, quiet place to live with nice finishes. A lot of the tenants that we have have like, you know, I can't afford to live in our units, but they have like <laughs> nicer furniture than I do and they drive a fancy car, but then that's what they want to do. Right. And that's yeah. what they value. And, you know, they want to have people over to their house and have family and company over and they, they place a high value on, I don't know if it's that image, but it's, it's a nice place to live. Right. So it's, it's like, it's their home and they, they treat it with uh, more respect. So I don't know if that answers your question in a roundabout <laughs> way, but you throw curveballs at me and throw them right back. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I guess um, like one of the, and this is getting a little bit off track, but like, is it ethical to make money off of housing? I guess that's uh, that's a question yeah, that's a question. because people say, you know, housing is a universal human right. Um, so yeah, but on the flip side, you know, and that maybe, you know, the government should provide all housing we know what happens when the government tries to provide housing. It's, it's actually makes it less affordable because yeah. the amount that they spend on building it and, and like everything that happens. So the most successful things that I've seen for affordable housing are, are usually public private partnerships like Indwell in Hamilton right. yeah. does a ton of work around. Yeah. They make nice units and uh, good housing for people. And yeah, they're not for profit, but that's, again, that's a very small portion of the, um, of the market. So, yeah. Is it ethical to make money from housing? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I don't even know where to take that. <laughs> um, when I say you're making money, um, because a lot of the times, um, like there's the, the other side of the, the coin is there's a big expenditure and a big risk that's involved. Right. So someone say, yeah, you're making money from housing, but at the same time, like, yeah, it might have costed you like, you know, several hundred thousand dollars of money and opportunity costs that you put in just to own this asset um, that someone else didn't do. Um, so you outcompeted the market to get it in the first place and you put all the hard work into making it what it is. And um, yeah, there's an appetite for somebody to rent it. So in that perspective, I think, um, yeah, there, it's ethical to, uh, to do it. It's a business just like anything else, right? You're providing a service, housing to a customer or tenant, uh, they're willing to pay for it. It's not like you're forcing them to live there. Um, so obviously if you, uh, yeah, if, if you put that on the market and there was nobody there to rent it, then yeah, we would have to lower our price to the, you know, like you said the affordable house range. Like, yeah, if you had, um, everyone had affordable housing, then yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of that also stems from lack of understanding. That's kind of why I'm asking some questions about like, what does it cost to actually get a place and then yeah. to renovate it to the point where, and maybe it's not, you know, you, you know, you're going probably a little more high end, yeah, but like even something that is just, I would say the good range to consider your all in costs when you're buying something, you're renovating it and you're carrying it for the duration of the renovations. Cause a lot of the times you don't have the cash. So you're actually on to borrow money to do all that. Yeah. And you don't have any income during the renovation period. So you're, uh, you have to carry that property and that 
has interest costs as well. You have utility costs, you simply pay the property taxes. So that's that's where a lot of investors, it's a big risk, right? So you get into the process and you know for the first six months or four months or however long the renovation takes, um, yeah, you're bleeding money, right? So you have to be able to handle that. And when you're all in, like yeah, maybe you're half a million dollars and yeah, when, when we're done the project, we generally go back to the bank and we get a new loan for what it's worth and we're able to pull out some money, but you're still sitting on, you know, a quarter million dollars. Yeah. Whatever, right? So, yeah, like you said, it does take a lot uh, out of people to invest. Yeah. So for providing housing for one or two families and maybe three, if you can add a garden suite, that's like... Uh, that's a significant amount of money, and especially if you're talking about a middle-class investor, right? I mean, people, I think, have this picture of of landlords as like Mr. Moneybags, just somebody who comes along and uh, is just drop, you know, has all this money to spend. And like, in what is the typical profile of the person that uh, that you're dealing with? Is it Mr. Moneybags, <laughs> Scrooge McDuck? Um, you know what? So we thought a lot about this as well because. Um, the people who have a lot of money, uh, maybe they're business owners and they've, they've made some wealth over the years and they've kind of learned the experience and they've learned the value of money, the value of investing and taking risks. So those people, um, we've worked with investors like that who, um, yeah, to them, they see a property come up and are like, you know, we, we make a suggestion like this is a property that we think would align with your goals. Um, and to them, it's a snap decision because they already know why they're investing and, and what the advantages are and what the risks are. And they make that decision very quickly. Um, but to them, um, yeah, generally we're one of many investments for them. Right. So, um, we're not, I mean, we're having an impact in their life. We're improving their financial uh, future, but you know, you're making the rich richer. So. From our perspective, like um, the people we like to work with the most are people that take more time to educate. Um, they're unaware of the value of investing and some of the benefits and drawbacks of it. And we can really shape their future in a way that they don't even understand because, um, yeah, like you said, they're middle-class, middle-aged family. Generally, they have some equity in a home, like their primary residence, and that works well. Um, and, you know, they're looking to retirement with um, these eyes going, you know, hey, am I going to have enough to make it when I'm retired? What should I do now? I have a little bit of time to think and breathe. Um, I'm not stressed out about my mortgage payments anymore. I kind of, you're, you're idling there, right? And you're not sure. Mm -hmm. So that's where we can step in and really move the needle for them. And uh, the decision to invest, you know, in your 40s, <clears throat> like, you know, 30s, 40s um, is can, can make a big difference in your financial future when you're, you know, 50, 60, right? Cause, uh, yeah, time in the market, not timing the market, but yeah, so time, time in time spent in the market is where you're going to build wealth. So, um, in terms of a profile, yeah, I would say kind of a middle-aged, uh, family and they have a house is kind of our, um, our target and that's worked really well. So. And yeah, and I guess without, I mean, like everything you've outlined, there's still, there's risk. So without that risk reward thing, would we get more housing? 
in uh, in this province? Well, like I'm going to take a risk and spend a bunch of money, and I hope that I get that reward. And you know, if someone's working with you, you kind of mitigate all those risks to make sure that you're on the best side of that deal as possible. But I mean, yeah, without that reward, is there is there an incentive for people to create housing? Yeah, there's less incentive. Like I I think the government says they build housing, but ultimately. They create the structure or the the environment in which private investors and individuals can build housing or not. So you know we're in southern Ontario and Hamilton, and yeah, we have we have to deal with the municipality. So they have their own bylaws and regulations. Uh, they obviously have targets for density as well. So here in the city, you know, um, we recently decided not to expand to um, expand the boundary to farmland. A couple of years back, and then you know that means where's the population going to go? They're going to go in the city. So the government kind of creates the environment and the regulations, the regulatory framework for private investors like you and I and the investors we work with to be able to go in and create housing units. So without that, um, you know, it's just uh, the government building houses, and I've never seen the government build a house. And if it did, it would probably be the most expensive. <laughs> I have, uh, like, every once in a while, you'll get, like, a, an announcement from the Minister of Housing, and, like, big announcement coming Tuesday, right? Yeah. And, like, we created 19 units. Yeah. Like, we're short, like, yeah. 250,000 <laughs> just in Ontario. Yeah. Like, good work, and that costs you, like, you know, twice what it would cost yeah, a, uh, a regular no, investor. There seems to be a miscommunication uh, between uh, immigration on the one hand from the federal government and um, you know, the housing, uh, housing supply, like creating new housing units uh, on the local level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if, if the government, the federal government decides, Hey, we're going to pump more people into this country and it doesn't translate to the provinces and the municipalities saying this is where they're going to go. Then they kind of go where they want, but that drives house prices up everywhere, right? If there's no adequate housing supply. So yeah, we can talk about that too, because, um, yeah, it's a bit of a crisis and, that's kind of the trend we're riding as well with our business. Um, so for investors to be able to take advantage of some of these population trends and uh, the lack of housing supply by creating housing options for a growing population, huge, huge advantage. Yeah, it's been a big focus of the Ford government as well. You know, people have criticized yeah. this, but when it comes down to it, we are so short of housing that, yeah, we have to intensify. And, and even that, there's always NIMBYs, right? Not in my backyard. Yeah. Like, yeah, we need more housing, but not where I live. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you talked a little bit about municipalities. And so, again, in Hamilton, where we're located, and this would be mirrored in a lot of other places, um, there's pilot projects being rolled out to um, basically to, to license every single um, rental suite in the city, right? And this is only a couple of wards right now, but I know we've got some clients in those wards and... Uh, yeah, so that'll involve, like, especially if it's a duplex, um, getting the, the fire safety done. That's the biggest focus, I think, which makes sense, right? Let's right. make sure everything is is safe. And especially in Hamilton, like, basement suites have been a thing for a long time, but maybe in the past 10 to 20% were actually legal. Mm-hmm. And when I say legal, I don't mean, uh, like, it's illegal, but... Um, like where it's been approved by inspectors and, and fire marshal and all that. So they're working to, to, to get that process done. So like, what is that process like? Do you, Cause I haven't gone through that really 
to add a second suite to a house um, and like make it legal. Right, yeah. Legal in quotation marks. <clears throat> yeah, so I think first the reason why you make it legal, like when we buy a property that's a single family dwelling, um, like the house is not um, set up for multiple units, multiple tenants. So you might be able to put a big family in there or two families, but they would have to be under the same household. Like they use the same kitchen kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. um, so if you put uh, a separate unit in there, now all of a sudden you introduce like, you know, um, yeah, you have issues between units. So you have sound transfer, you have fire um, transfer. So you might have a situation where, you know, tenants are, um, you know, light a fire in the basement for some reason, and that transfers <laughs> to the upstairs unit, but that's a completely self separate, self-contained unit. So um, how does the city address all that? Well, they have the building code um, that kind of outlines the guidelines of what, what is and what is not uh, permitted when you're converting from a single family home to a two family dwelling. Um, so if you do want to convert, uh, a lot of the times you have to find a suitable property, first of all, uh, because there are properties that it's, it's basically, uh, way too expensive to convert. So, um, you know, you can kind of convert whatever you want, but if you don't have the ceiling height, for example, you'll be digging down and underpinning the foundation. And, um, so we've done some of that where the numbers make sense, um, to do all these expensive renovations, but, um, generally speaking, we try to find a property that meets the criteria as much as possible. So what you do is, um, once you've found the property, um, you have to get building permits and in order to get a building permit, you have to comply with the zoning, uh, bylaws, right? <laughs> so, um, obviously try to find property in the right zoning that permits it, uh, cause there is zonings, um, where, you know, more density is permitted. So you could even add more units. Um, so you obviously want to check the zoning of your property before you start. Um, but the zoning um, requires that you have parking, for example. So if you have to have a parking spot, what is a legally defined parking spot? Because a lot of people say, oh, I got a parking in my front yard. Yeah, well, does the city approve that <laughs> as a legal parking spot? And would they approve that on an inspection or with the plans reviewer when he's looking over your drawings say, yeah, no, you're good. So there's legal definitions for all of these different things. Um, and if you don't meet those zoning requirements, then you need to apply for a minor variance. And, um, and that's a, a little bit more of an onerous process. Um, but yeah, you generally won't get a building permit until you um, clear all of those issues first. And you have to go through, it's a public process. So you're gonna have a hearing, uh, hearing date at the city. Uh, they've been doing Zoom calls lately, so the neighbors can have input, like public consultation. So there's a notice that goes out to everybody, said, hey, you know, this guy down the road is hoping to put a basement apartment in. He doesn't have parking. He's looking to do this. Do you have any input? And so, yeah, it can be a little bit political. And you mentioned NIMBYs, like not in my backyard. Yeah, there's a lot of pushback in some areas, right? Because, um, yeah, if you don't meet the requirements, then, uh, people can raise their, raise their hands, I don't like this. Um, but generally in Hamilton, things have been going through pretty smoothly on that front, but it does take time and it's added cost. So there's a cost to that location and time to that process. Um, but yeah, once you get that through, then you're into building permit stuff, which is, you know, fire rating, 
So how do you separate the units? Uh, and every municipality, we've done jobs in St. Catharines as well. Um, different municipalities have different requirements um, and ways of interpreting the building code. So it's, it's kind of <laughs> wide, but um, yeah, so it, it, that's something to consider too, if you're looking to buy a property in a certain area, um, kind of understanding what that city has a reputation for. Um, every city has their thing, right? Um, so, so yeah, there'd be fire, there's uh, ceiling height, like we talked about, uh, egress. So point of egress, be able to get out safely out of the unit. Um, a lot of times there's interconnected smoke detectors. So these sorts of things, right, where um, uh, you have to meet all these building code requirements. So for uh, somebody taking an existing basement apartment and converting it, uh, there is some allowances for uh, like uh, grandfathering in uh, building materials that are already installed. Mm -hmm. uh, some cities have like more stringent requirements, like they'll make you rip the drywall down if it's not proper. Uh, but yeah, we haven't had too many issues in, uh, in Hamilton with that. So. so there's like, there's a ton of things you got to think about before you even like you talked about renter profile, right? That's one. And then selecting the property. And I fell asleep somewhere between like parking spots and minor variants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, cause as you know, I'm just, that's not, I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. That's not my personality, yeah. right? Like I just, Oh man, you tell me all this stuff. I'm like, I, there's no way I can never do it. Forget it. Right. Yeah. Well, so that my response to that, just that comment quickly before you ask the next question is, um, you know, that's where you add value because a lot of people like myself included, that's not the fun part, right? Is, no. is going with the city and dealing with all these issues and neighbors and, and building code. And, but that's where value is added, right? Um, so if you do go through the process, now all of a sudden you've increased the value of your property. Um, you know, it depends where it is and what it is, but Hey, you can increase the value of a property quite significantly just by going through that process, um, right, and legalizing it. So that's my comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm just thinking the old days of uh, you buy a place and you know throw some drywall up and get someone in the basement and someone in the uh, in the main level are kind of probably kind of gone. Uh, yeah, well, like you know, you people do do that, and yeah. um, you know it it happens. Um, Generally, you know, I, I, I've heard from people too, hey, I'm putting in a basement apartment, what, what should I do? Yeah. And I, I advise them to get a permit because of these advantages, right? Like you can you can get higher rent usually because people think it's safe. You can, um, you know, get more value out of your property because you know, buyers think it's safer and better and the city uh, appraisers value it more so you can refinance it better. So all these different reasons, right? But I don't even know where I was going with this. Well, have you, um, I don't know, have you had either a client or maybe someone you've talked to who's had yeah, one of these basement apartments and the tenant called in and complained no, I and the city inspected? That, but, um, but yeah, so people, people do do illegal units. Um, and yeah, it, the temptation is to do it because the numbers work better because I don't have to deal with the city. I don't have to get a permit mm -hmm. to do the extra fire rating or whatever. And I... Yeah, I don't know. As a business, we, we do everything above board and we try to do like legal units. And, uh, but yeah, I have heard, you know, definitely if it's your own property and you live there and you put, you know, your brother in the basement. Um, yeah, like there's definitely an argument to be made. Hey, I'm just like, I know the guy, whatever. Yeah. Put him in there, right? So 
but we try to say, you know, make things safe and proper. Like you, even if you don't get a building permit, still put in the right fire separation and whatnot. So it is safe. It is up to building code. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I can just imagine with the city like enforcing a lot they more have of this licensing. Made it easier, right? They've made it easier to apply and to get the permits um, than it used to be because it was a fairly new thing. So back, like you know, several years ago, it was like you know, the city didn't even know how to handle all these permit applications. So <laughs> now it's they have a bit of a system, and it's yeah. still a lot more work than it was before. But now, yeah, it's uh, they're handling it better. So. Yeah, no, but I, I have talked to people who who ran into some problems with an undeclared or an illegal basement unit and uh, city came in and they had to do a lot of work, which would have been a lot easier to do. Yeah. Generally you do up front. terms. Too, yeah. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. I can throw a monkey wrench into things. That's why I like to do it all up front. The other thing is when you buy a property, generally um, you buy it and it's vacant. So the opportunity to have a vacant property, um, in terms of renovating it is nice, right? Because then mm -hmm. like, if I need to shut the furnace off, do some HVAC work, um, I don't have to disturb tenants. If I'm cutting concrete and there's dust everywhere, like all of these things, just, you know, get all the construction done at once, get it out of the way. And then, um, then you can put tenants in it and it's ready to go and you don't have to go back. Right. So, yeah. but that was my kind of philosophy on that too. So. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it can be a daunting process, I think, right? From start to finish, from just the initial plans to selecting the house to then actually doing the renovations, getting the permits, finalizing, you know, dealing with trades. Yeah. That's, uh, that's another yeah. one too, right? So, yeah. If you know a lot of people and you're pulling favors, that works, but yeah, it works once. <laughs> you know, hey, I helped you carry drywall for this project. Yeah, I got another one. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, and trades can be a big thing too, because, uh, you know, what questions do you ask? How do you deal with them? What's a fair price to pay? What, you know, what should I expect in terms of quality or service? So like, yeah, if you've never renovated before, that's a whole can of worms. Like it just, um, it could be kind of daunting. So, but yeah, it's, uh, it, that's where you achieve, uh, like we talked about before leverage of time, like you can leverage someone else's time to really, you could do a lot of the work yourself and save money, but, mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, like your time is valuable as well. So I look at it, um, kind of like, you know, if I was drywalling the house all day, um, you know, at an hourly wage that that's what I'm doing with my time. And I, I have to decide that best use of my time, like it's what I want to be doing. Um, I'm not cut out for that. I, I don't, I'm not very good at drywall, <laughs> to be honest, but, um, the people who are can do it much quicker and they can get things done and your project runs a lot smoother and gets done faster, professional result, and you're on to the next thing. Right. So, um, that's the way we look at it too, right? Having trades that are available, that are ready to go, that are professional and, um, you put them in on a project and they've, um, a lot of our trades have done it before. So, you know, if you do it yourself, a lot of times you're running into, um, issues with inspectors. Like, you know, I didn't know the inspector wanted to see this. So now I'm going to have to rip that all out and redo mm -hmm. it this way. And I've heard a lot of stories too, where people make those mistakes themselves. And then, you know, they hire a professional and he gets it done in five minutes because he's done it a hundred times. Right. Yeah. So there's value in, in having good trades and a good network of trades. So. Yeah. It reminds me of a story. I, I, I think it's a made up story, but, uh, 
a steamship that's uh, that's not running. They've tried everything to get it going, and uh, finally, this is old timey, by the way, steamship. I don't think we have those anymore. <laughs> that's another episode. What? How does a steamship work? But finally, they get a professional who comes in and um, you know looks at it, walks around, checks it out for an hour, and then uh, you know bangs in a specific spot with a wrench. Says, okay, you're good. That'll be $5,000. And you're like, $5,000? All you did was hit the side with a yeah, wrench and it fixed it. Yes. That was a lot of dollars, right? It was probably paid in gold or something. And, you know, he's like, it was, you know, it was a dollar for banging the wrench and the rest, the other $4,999 was for knowing where to hit it. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of the same thing with a professional, right? Because people will get the quote up front and be like, that's a lot of money for a bathroom. Yeah. Then they do it themselves and screw it up and end up paying twice as much as yeah. uh, as they know, would have. And back in uh, the first property or first couple of properties we bought, I don't know how many times there was a Home Depot once. Yeah. There's a little goat bath going from my house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess I need some drywall screws or I guess yeah, I need outlets. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, okay. So that's a pretty good process. Um, I had a question for you, which I've, uh, <laughs> which I've forgotten. But, uh, yeah, is there, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to add just about that process or, or kind of what you guys do for uh, for people um, to bring value? Yeah, not so much about the process. Like, the strategy is definitely to help <laughs> these people to acquire an asset that will improve the financial future over the long term. So zooming out a, a bit of a macro view of everything, um, yeah, there's the nitty-gritty of, like, building the house and whatnot and finding out which one. But at the end of the day, we're really trying to use your wealth that you have or use your savings, use your equity to buy an asset that's going to appreciate in value. Um, and um, we'll definitely talk about this more about what the value of real estate is. But um, yeah, this house goes up in value. You pay down the debt on it over time using the tenant's money. And um, you're going to hold that for a long period of time. So, um, you know, Hopefully uh, you have the appetite for another property down the road and you come back to us because you like the process. Um, but that's kind of the goal and the macro strategy is buy assets and hold them long-term and build your wealth. Um, so yeah, that's a bit about us. Okay. Yeah. So I guess in that process, really, especially if you're doing a line of credit, you're turning that your house into two houses Yeah. and then maybe three houses and maybe four houses without really, um, like, especially if you're doing a longer process without putting additional capital in usually, unless you want to accelerate that process, yeah. but you can leverage equity from each property. Yeah. Generally some speaking. people say, Hey, I did one. Hey dad, this, this worked out really good. You know, I, would you like to put in on the next one? And yeah, then, then they, you know, they're off to the races. So, um, yeah, then you start getting into, um, a little bit more risk because you're borrowing other people's money. But, um, yeah, it definitely expedites the process of growing the wealth uh, because the more you can acquire sooner, um, you know, the easier like then time starts ticking and you know you're paying down debt, your your asset is growing in value, um, and yeah, there's undulations along the way like we've seen mm -hmm. recently where uh, prices kind of soften a bit because interest rates are high, um, so we expect that to be you know. There's some volatility along the way, but yeah, generally you hold the asset and uh, you'll do well.
Yeah, and at the same time, you're providing safe housing for. for yeah, there's a lot of satisfaction in that too. Like to see the tenants enjoying the space, and like for us, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. Like, you know, these people really appreciate it. And they take care of it. They treat it as their home, and they get a lot of positive feedback that way. It, yeah, it's really, it's really nice. Cool. Good. Well, I think we got to wrap up there. And uh, where can people get a hold of you, Brent? So my email is brent at goodstewards.ca. You can check out our website, goodstewards.ca. We we have a contact page there as well. It's a little bit about us. And then uh, you can find us on Instagram as well. We've been posting stuff. Um, I think it's Good Stewards Inc. Um, So, yeah, feel free to check us out, reach out, drop a line. And uh, we'd love to chat with you. Absolutely. And uh, if you're listening out there and you want to learn a little bit more about short and midterm rentals, you can get a uh, hold of us at uh, joyhill.ca or markandkirsten.ca. Throw a, uh, a uh, submission in there. We'll get the email and we will get back to you. So thank you for listening to another episode of The Two Stewards, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Two Stewards Show. If you like my voice better, click subscribe. And if you like my voice better, click share. If you like both, give us a five-star rating. To interact with the show, feel free to reach out at hello at twostewards.ca. We'll see you in the next episode. In the meantime, steward your wealth wisely. Mm-hmm.